Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Liz. I live in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, try to keep this as brief as I can. Hi, my name is Laura. I'm 37. My name is Liz Lindley. Hi, my name is Karen. I'm, 30 I'm 35. My and name I is Hannah. I'm 27 and I am from Boise, Idaho. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was 22 years old. My infertility journey started about four years ago. Mine and my husband's quest to get pregnant began in May of 2015. We started trying to get pregnant in April of 2010 and um, it took us 15 months um, until we got pregnant but unfortunately that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. It's been quite the journey. Um, you know, we're all just doing the best that we can. So, thank you. As you know, this is a roller coaster that's hard to get off of. Filled with twat wines, snatch pills, cruel comments, egotistical doctors, tears, pain, and laughter. Your podcast is helping me on my journey. But I'm definitely in a better place than I was years ago. and Still work in progress. But very thankful for Anna and Simon for sharing their story and capturing the essence of what the journey to parenthood can be like for some people. I can't wait to hear updates on you. I can't thank you enough for being the support I needed at that time and feeling connected to you even though you're a complete stranger. But I hope you and Simon are doing well and uh, can't wait to hear your new podcast. All right, thanks so much. Wishing you as much joy, ease, and lightness as possible. Liz. Best of luck to you both, and I hope you get the family that you want. Danielle. Wow, that was amazing. I've got tears in my eyes. I'm so excited that we're back, and we're so grateful that so many people reached out to us with such amazing messages about season one. Not a lot of men reaching out, but that's okay. If you're new to the show, I'm Anna. And I'm Simon. When you last heard from us, we were halfway through a seemingly healthy pregnancy, but we weren't acting like it was normal. We'd been through five years of trying to have a baby, including three IUIs, two IVF cycles, multiple surgeries, and two miscarriages. So we were very, very, very anxious about that pregnancy, even though the fetus was checking every box. It was a box checker. We know that a lot of listeners were just as anxious to hear how that pregnancy turned out. So in this episode, we're going to complete our personal story and then explain what's ahead for season two. One quick reminder, you're going to hear us reference Yoshi a lot in this. Yoshi was the code name we gave our third pregnancy after our first two pregnancies, code names Cleopatra and Robocop, ended in miscarriage. Now, the audio that you're about to hear is from near the end of our pregnancy, the night before the planned induction procedure to deliver the baby. In about two and a half hours, we are going to go into the hospital to start our induction. Woohoo! <laughs> And we've been told that we have to get the baby out because uh, Anna's blood pressure has been high 
and the doctors uh, are kind of pushy on it. <laughs> yeah, they said that they were pretty much just waiting for me to develop preeclampsia at this point. So they the logic behind the induction is that an induced labor feels better on me than a labor um, that has progressed to preeclampsia because they have to do a lot more interventions at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, we're very excited about it. There is something nice about the induction in that we know, okay, baby's coming. This is the weekend. We're going to have the baby. But on the other hand, I had been preparing for this natural childbirth thing for uh, like eight weeks. We took this really long class, and I had this vision that my birth would be like, oh, mild contractions at night. I wake up, and then I go to dim sum, and then I go on a nice hot nature walk, and then I bake a cake, and... Obviously, none of that happened. Um, you did bake a cake. Okay, yeah, I did. I'm in the process of finishing and up. And we a... did have dim sum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, I, I'm finishing a three-layer cake right now. All I need to do is make the icing and then ice the cake. It's kind of involved. It involves making caramel twice. So oh. I really hope that my family appreciates it. <laughs> Whoa, that seems like another world, another time. We actually don't sound that crazy or worried there. Here's a little later that night, though. Uh, I'm going to be relieved to have her out of me because, as Simon told me once, I've basically been looking for signs of loss for this these past 39 weeks. Um, mom, pregnant people are usually advised to do kick counts once a day. I do them three times a day. I've gone into my doctor's office, I, w- I would say, three times in the in the third trimester just because I felt like she wasn't moving normally anymore. Um, just like this hypervigilance, I know it doesn't end once she's out of the womb, but at least I'll be able to see her then. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't wait to hold her. You've been hogging the holding inside you the whole time, and I just want to hold her and know her. That sounds a lot more like us, terrified and anxious. Well, so during the pregnancy, again, Anna was very focused on the birth aspect of everything. The sort of thing that is, you know, one day and done. That was the part that Anna was 100% focused on. I, I get it. It's, it's not I mean, the next time that your penis opens up <laughs> to the size of a bowling ball... <laughs> Maybe you might understand the focus on just I guess, one day. I, I guess, but I don't know if I would have made cakes in anticipation of my penis opening up like a bowling <laughs> ball. But again, different different things for different folks. So we took this six week course on how to labor without pain medication, which, which was a big deal, you know. And so it was a very woo woo class, a sort of place where we sang a song to the unborn child at every appointment, and it was very Santa Monica and crunchy. And there was, I think it. There was holding our hands and ice chips and all these different things to simulate pain and sort of and there was also some very practical stuff like how do I could hold your hand without you then breaking my hand as you were destroyed from the inside by a being tearing its way out of you. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I was 50 percent holding in a giggle and then also 50 percent fascinated and terrified. Yeah, but I mean, there was you were into a lot of parts of it. I mean, there was some emotional things about what do you want from your birth and what do you want to what do you want it to be like and letting that go yeah i got really caught up like i thought that i would have this really special awesome like sort of milestone adulthood experience like the, the contractions would start naturally maybe after a morning yoga class 
and then I would like labor powerfully with like a lot of athletic equipment like a yoga ball and like a sports bra and like maybe some water I don't know and then I would give birth to her and then I would like experience an orgasm as she came out <laughs> and then like feel that like euphoric like hormonal high as she sits on my chest and then like a yodel and then I feel in connection with like all the women that have ever come before me like that's sort of what I was expecting right but that's not again nothing remotely like what happened and you know it wasn't it wasn't all I, I mean look I think your expectations were a little fantastical but it was also we had a little bit of bad luck which is that we had to induce the the birth and so because of that the contractions and stuff ended up being a lot harsher than we thought they would be mm-hmm. um first we started off with misoprostol which started labor then cytotec actually broke my water then and again this... this is all in the hospital which is not what you wanted where you wanted things to begin at all no yeah i thought that i was going to be like laboring at home and watching netflix but no, they started a Pitocin drip at the hospital, which is the chemical that strengthens contractions. And I, I can't say this from my own experience, but judging by your reaction, a Pitocin drip is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone ever. <laughs> um, the contractions for me were so painful that I was basically, um, would you say that I was passing out in between contractions? You were, you were very loopy. You were so you were on the pitocin drip without any pain meds, and you sort of. We had this whole procedure, and we had a doula there, and we had this stuff we'd practice with sort of meditated breathing and all these things. And so each contraction would come, and we would do this breathing thing with you, and then I would instantly fall asleep. Yeah, you would basically fall asleep backwards and almost be like kind of mumbling and incoherent it was like you were in a fever like Mm -hmm. you were really out of it and this was honestly pretty early in the process so that was what was kind of terrifying to me was like we were not in the teeth of this thing yet yeah uh when i felt like i did this for six hours and then i felt like okay i cannot take this anymore I want them to check how much I dilated because I was thinking like, okay, if I'm at like six, seven, eight, like that means I'm good, doing well, I'm progressing. And if I'm not dilating, then that means that something needs to change really fucking quickly. And I had only dilated two centimeters that whole time. And I was so in so much pain and I was so tired and I was like, fuck it. Nothing matters anymore. Just give me the epidural. But I was also like really sad. Like I was crying. you were bummed. Yeah, like, uh, like my doula was holding my head and she was like, Anna, what's wrong? And I was like, all those people that said that I wouldn't be able to do it are right. And then yeah. she was like, Anna. And then she took my face in her hand. She was like, Anna, fuck other people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you, well, just a reminder that right before our wedding, when you were about to walk out and, you know, be seen in your gown and everything, you were pacing around with the bridesmaids. And what they described to me is that you just kept saying, fuck the haters, fuck the haters, fuck the haters, fuck the haters. <laughs> that, like, that like you couldn't get out of your head like what other people would think about you walking down the aisle. So it doesn't it's not that shocking to me that you kept thinking about other people's I, yeah, that reactions. I'm, I'm not going to take I because I think you felt that you had made such a big deal about the, the class that you were taking and laboring without pain medication. And I think you were sort of. To, to get off your high horse was a, a unhappy thing for you. But if no you, one likes to admit when they're wrong. I, well, let's not call it wrong. <laughs> you know, let's not call it wrong. But for whatever reason, the epidural worked really well for Anna. It was like textbook. Basically, they gave it to her. The pain stopped. 
She went to sleep for six hours. I went to sleep. The doula went home. And then when she woke up, she was fully dilated. It was 10 centimeters ready to push. That was amazing. I was like, thank you, Jesus, for epidurals. And um, here, we've got some clips you can hear from different parts of the uh, process. And one, two, three, four, five, keep going, keep going, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. So good. Good job. And go for it. And one, two, three, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now she's ready. Yeah. Do, you want, do you want your shirt up or are you good? I'm going to pull your shirt up for me. She's tiny. She's going to get cold. This so those clips are courtesy of our amazing doula who I already mentioned earlier. Her name is Rebecca Kersey Ruff. She helped me through my labor. She took photos and video throughout. But my favorite clip by far is this one of my sister talking about how horrible it was to witness the actual moment of birth. It took its toll on her. <laughs> At the end, I thought you would be scared at the beginning when I was pooping so much. No, that wasn't that wasn't interesting at all. <laughs> <laughs> that happened all the time. <laughs> like it wasn't even like funny. It was just like that's really boring. <laughs> so what were you scared of, Don? I didn't way, even know. The way that she looked. You mean when they pulled her out? Yeah. So what they're talking about here is the way that Yoshi looked as she emerged from the birth canal. And she looked terrible. <laughs> she was straight up gray. She it, was just she was like wrinkled skin on bone. It was, it was definitely like a tiny little shriveled alien. You know, she had the complete cone head thing and she was dead silent, like terrifyingly silent. And I mean, part of it is now 39 weeks is when we induced, which should really produce like a pretty much fully baked baby. That's full term. Yeah, that's full term. And Yoshi came out and she looked like put me back in for another month. <laughs> yeah, she was less than six pounds at birth. She was covered in vernix, which is this waxy goo that protects the baby skin in the womb. Um, and then the reason that it turned out that she was silent was because she had gotten her shoulder stuck in my pelvis and the final push to bring her out just like snapped her collarbone. Yeah, so she didn't cry immediately. And when she did cry, she sounded like this wounded cat, this little... And so just to talk about her, her name for a second here. So as people who were calling the baby Yoshi before she was born, you know, we had a couple options and we had some fanciful ideas and we sort of settled on two ideas. And one was Marigold, which we thought was sort of a, a pretty name. And so it had sweet. Some, and yeah, it had some sort of references to different grandparents and things like that. And then the other was Minerva. Now, I don't know how many of our listeners know about sort of the myths about Minerva, but basically she's born fully formed from her father Zeus's head after he ate her mother. Yes, and she's she, she's wearing a full coat of armor with yeah. weapons. And we live in California and she's on the state seal of California. And so we thought, OK, that's like a badass name for a little girl. And so when Yoshi came out and she was just like a silent gray worm that didn't move <laughs> for a day, we were like, OK, this is not Minerva. So her name is Marigold, if you're curious. So that's the name we ended up going with. Goldie. <laughs> yeah, we call her Goldie. When I saw her face for the first time, I felt like I was seeing an old friend that I hadn't seen in years. It was like this sense of recognition, like, hey, we we know each other. 
The important thing to note is that after I gave birth, my parents did come through for me and they brought me a sushi takeout box. And they brought one for me too, of course. I hadn't had this sushi for like 10 months and I wanted it to be super special and like I was so excited, but... Between like the epidural and like the fatigue, I don't know, something happened. It just tasted like nothing and it felt like sludge. Mine was fine. <laughs> uh, I was just really distracted maybe. The baby slept for the first 24 hours of her life. She didn't breastfeed. Um, I was scared of pooping and showering because of all these stitches that I got from tearing. Yeah, Anna, was, Anna did not trust her body at all at this point. I mean, she sort of... And I, I get it. I'm not I'm not making fun of it. But like she sort of acted like if she rolled the wrong way on that bed, like both of her legs were going to fly off and hit the wall across the room. The thing that made me scared was that soon after the birth, you know, my doctor was stitching me up and I was like, hey, Dr. Brown, um, how many stitches are you putting? Because I hear like I hear people throw out the number like, oh, I got two stitches, blah, blah, blah. And then she looked at me in the face and then she was like, you know what, Anna, it's not really important what the number is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you tell someone when you're you're just you're running out of thread down there. I got when so you're, scared. When you're rebuilding the vagina from scratch. <laughs> she was like, the important thing about your tear is that it's shallow. It's not deep. It's only a second degree tear. And I was like, okay. <laughs> And Anna, Anna was really obsessed with, and I, I get it, you know, like if, if someone had said, like, if I couldn't see my penis and someone had said to me, okay, part of your penis tore off, you know, but don't worry, it's fine. It would be like, which, which part, how much of it? I, I get it. I think it makes total sense. So, well, the other thing that the doctor said was like, Anna, just promise me, don't take a mirror down there until six, six weeks. Okay. And I was like, okay. So what Anna did do, she, she compromised. She didn't take a mirror down there right away, but Anna's sister is an artist and was with us for the birth. So Anna had her sister draw her vagina taint and asshole and make like a little sketch for her to illustrate like where the stitches were and how long they were relative to everything, which is a little artistic keepsake we have from the birth. It was a lot of stitches. Uh, we probably won't post that in the show notes. No. <laughs> Anyway, so a day after the birth, I was in the hospital bed. Simon was in the cot next to me. We had the baby in the clear bassinet and these nurses were coming in. They were helping me measure my pee. They were putting my adult diapers on me. They were trying to help me breastfeed. It was such an amazing, beautiful experience, like a really great example of like caretaking. But like I was so hormonal that I couldn't appreciate it. Like I'll never forget this beautiful blonde nurse. She was so loving she was so sweet to Goldie and helpful to Simon. And she was singing to the baby, talking to her. She was teaching Simon how to change her diaper and give her a bath. And then the next day she would come in for her shift and she would say, Hello, little one. I dreamed about you last night. Yeah, she was a doll. I wanted to cut a bitch. I actually felt homicidal watching her laugh with my family, hold my baby. Meanwhile, I was laid back all bloody and bloated and stitched up and like I was like screaming in my head, get away from my family. Right, you were like going through like a 90s thriller, like a hand that rocked the cradle thing going on back there. <laughs> um, and that was sort of a preview of the next three months with Anna postpartum where she was kind of crying a lot and there was some screaming and paranoia and literally like in the middle of the night saying that she was covered with bugs and that the baby was covered with bugs and that we needed to change all the sheets and throw everything like it was it was intense yeah the just in my defense the bug thing turned out to be like a really common postpartum all over body itch that a lot of women get and then like 
the baby had this rash on her face that looked like bug bites, but it's actually a very common hormonal rash that babies get. To. Yeah, it wasn't to be fair, like it wasn't like the issues you were talking about weren't real. It was that it sort of as a preview for dealing with a toddler. It was like you didn't have the emotional energy or reserves to be reasoned with. <laughs> you could sort of just be like redirected or distracted, not really like sort of discuss like well honey i don't think that you're covered with bugs like that wasn't an acceptable outcome it was sort of like a pantomime of like we're changing the sheets we're doing this you know <laughs> like that was sort of like what we were able to do uh, until things settled down a little bit well on a happier note i remember bringing goldie home from the hospital for the first time and i was holding her in my arms giving her a tour of the house you know like here's the kitchen here's the living room and then I just started bawling. I just started crying so hard because I realized that everything that we had also belonged to her. And not only that, but everything we had, we had bought with her in mind. Everything from the baby stuff to our furniture to even this whole damn house. So we had always been thinking of this child even before we knew we were infertile. Right. And so now that we have a kid, it does raise this natural question, which is, does this mean that we're still an infertile couple? We're going to ponder this and other deep thoughts after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss we were so happy that ivf and on got some attention one of the most exciting things that happened was that it landed on atlantic's top 50 podcasts of 2017 they called our marriage quote passive aggressive very good accurate review (laughs) (laughs) ringing endorsement and after all of those reviews and messages, we realized that there was one thing we forgot to ask of you guys, which is to review us, to rate us. Yeah, we forgot to do the most basic thing, which is ask you to go to the iTunes store and give us five stars and a nice little recommendation. If IVFML helped you feel heard, it helped you find your community, or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know. You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com. A lot of you guys have already reached out. Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com. Thanks. So we have a kid now. Does this make us part of the Happy Fertile Breeders Club? 
All right, so I've been thinking about this because obviously being infertile is a big part of our identity. We did a podcast about being infertile. And I still feel infertile. And I don't mean I'm not trying to like irritate anyone listening who doesn't have a kid and can't have a kid. Uh, but it is still part of our identity. And I mean, we can talk for a second about like it hasn't had that big an effect on what it is to be a parent. I mean, how have you felt about being a parent post infertility? Um, I would say that there is this thing that people predicted about my miscarriages at the time that I, I, I resisted and I felt resentful of. When I was having my miscarriages, um, people would say, Anna, in a couple of years when you have a child, you won't even think about those miscarriages at all. And I'd be like, yeah, right. Like these miscarriages were like tearing me up. I was crying about them. I was thinking about them um, at their anniversaries of like, oh, this is when it was supposed to be born or this is when we right. were supposed we, to be born. We blah, talked blah. about you wanted Mother's Day cards yeah, and different things. Yeah, I thought that I, you know, and it's like they said, like, I don't think about those losses at all because my mind is so focused on Goldie now. Yeah, and I, I think part of that, it is sort of just that a child, especially a very young child, there's just a time and energy suck. So it's almost like you can't be distracted by infertility and loss and all these different things because a kid just needs, you know, 130% of your energy all the time. So mm -hmm. I, I would say in the element of us as new parents, like I would like to think in my naive romantic way that we love our baby more than other people love their baby because we have lost and struggled. I would like to believe that it's almost certainly BS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how can you really tell? I can tell, but <laughs> well, there are some people like that have IVF. They go through fertility, have IVF, and then when they um, give birth, um, maybe because of postpartum depression or other complications, they're sort of feeling like, "Oh, I worked really hard to get this baby, and that, and I'm sort of disappointed by parenthood." Like that, right. that's the other flip side of right. Because parenthood is, to... you know, a lot of a lot of hard work and a lot of bad stuff. And we're not going to turn this into a parenting podcast, just to be clear. We have zero interest in doing that right now. Um, but the reason why I still sort of cling to the infertile label is that from like a basic technical sense, we are still infertile. We want to have a second child and we can't. You know, we pulled the goalie essentially the minute we started having sex again after Goldie was born, we stopped using protection again to sort of see like, hey, are we going to get a what do they call it? The the free baby, the free baby. Yeah. The, <laughs> and it hasn't happened. And I have all these friends and people, people who are older than us, older couples who they want to have their second child. They stop birth control and then boom they have the second child so i totally understand if an infertile couple or someone is listening to this and is like screw you you're not infertile you have a baby i i get it i'm not trying to say that you're wrong and i'm right but we want to have a second child and maybe that's greedy and we're gonna have to do ivf again so i still sort of feel that label of infertility that the easy thing, the most basic biological thing is not the thing we're going to do. Like we're going to this doctor, we're now discussing a timeline for embryo transfer, and we are, again, prepping Anna's body with injections and diet and all this different stuff. I kind of hesitate to continue claiming the infertility identity so much because there are people who are infertile, and actually most people, according to data on the success of IVF, who do treatments and don't end up giving birth in the end. 
Right. So I, I totally acknowledge that we are the lucky ones. And I remember after we had the baby, I was at a, a children's birthday party, which is something I used to freaking hate. I mean, it's not like I love it now, but it was much harder when we were infertile and hadn't had a baby. And I met this guy there and he was sort of talking about his fertility issues. And I thought, oh, OK, this is a great conversation for me. I host an infertility podcast. And so I sort of talked him through like our different IUIs and our miscarriages and our IVF cycles. And I had our baby on the hip while we were talking and things kind of took a turn. Uh huh. What happened? Well, he then sort of talked to me about the nine IVF cycles he and his wife had been through. They've never been pregnant. They're not, you know, they're getting close to the end biologically. And, you know, in fact, his wife wasn't at the party because she was recovering from a surgery they had just done, you know, trying to push the ball down the field again. Holy shit. Yeah. So I just felt like I felt terrible because I felt like to me, I was like, oh, we're sharing this struggle together. We're talking about this thing. But then I hear his story and I realize I'm holding a baby and this guy's at a children's birthday party without his wife and they've been through 10 years of this. Like mm-hmm. to me, I'm like, well, we gave our five years and we're still struggling to have a second baby. You know, we're still in this. But I so I get it. I'm not saying that it's equivalent situations, but it does still apply for me a little bit. Um, I actually had a similar experience. I was talking to this old friend of mine who successfully adopted their first child um, and they immediately put themselves on the list to adopt a second child. And so for the past four years, they've gotten two or three leads about a potential child available for an open adoption. And every single lead has fallen through. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm asking this, but have you considered IVF? Right, which is exactly the sort of unwanted flyby advice bullshit that you and I have always hated. Yeah, I felt like an idiot. And then after I felt like an idiot, I started to feel compassion for all of those hapless fools out there who dared to offer us advice about our infertility. Now that it's been a couple years since the miscarriages and the failed IVF, I can honestly say that the experience of being infertile has changed me for the better. So you, you feel like it's some sort of spiritual experience that's lifted you or something like that? or No, it's not spiritual at all. What, what I'm saying is it's, it's like very grounded. It's very down to earth. Here's what's happened to me. Um, when I used to reach out to people and talk to them about my miscarriages or the fact that IVF wasn't working for us, like I mostly would get the brush off. They were mostly trying to minimize my experience or they were trying to offer advice, attempt to solve our problem and then just move on in the conversation. And what I've come to realize over time is that not that these people are insensitive assholes. Some of them probably are. (laughs) Some, yes, for sure. Some of them are smug assholes. But we as a people and as a community, we're just not good at being confronted by other people's pain. It makes us feel uncomfortable It makes us feel scared, like, oh, that could be me. We don't know what to do with that awkwardness. So we blurt out some kind of solution, and then we think it's going to get better. We tell ourselves we're doing it to make the other person feel good. But in reality, we're doing it to make ourselves feel less afraid and help us move on to other topics in the conversation. I think that's a really good insight. It's kind of like people... They just want to say something like try acupuncture or take a vacation because that's so much easier than sort of really sitting with and dealing with a complex emotion like, wow, you really want a child but may never have one and it's an existential crisis for you. And that that sort of deep, unpleasant conversation is like a place no one wants to be. Right. 
once I understood that, I realized that I was doing it to other people in my life as well for different issues. People coming to me about their loneliness. People were talking to me about their layoffs. And I was also just tossing off those glib one-liners because I felt bad. I just felt bad in general. But now that I understand what it feels like to, to be dismissed, um, to be completely overlooked when it comes to this really tough issue in my life, I make a personal effort to better model compassion. And, and I, try to, I try to focus on physical compassion. What I mean by that is if someone's talking to me person to person, I consciously try to sit there, not speak or react in any way. Um, I might do like a hug or a handhold. And those like physical responses to their pain are sort of helping me, you know, gain control of whatever internal freak out that I'm trying to have at the moment. And it sort of stops me from brainstorming ways to get out of this uncomfortable situation. And I think this actually does sort of tie into what we are doing this season, because we are focusing on other people telling their own awkward, painful, sometimes triumphant, but sometimes not stories about infertility. So I think this is going to really be a chance for all of us to be active listeners and hear the kinds of stories that sometimes even close friends may not want to share. On the next episode of IVFML, she just looked at me and she's like, we found traces of leukemia in your blood. Another doctor walked in and then he tells me, I know this is a really hard time for you. And I really don't know how to say this, but when you get your chemotherapy, there's a chance that you might become infertile. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendrala, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.